In the age of Instagram and social sharing, brick-and-mortar businesses offer a unique advantage that even the biggest and best online platforms can't compete with. On Brick and Mortar Reborn, we talk with business owners and industry experts about what they're seeing work best for brick and mortar businesses who aren't just competing with their online counterparts, but thriving in spite of all the options that customers now have. We'll share exactly what you can do to set yourself up for success with an experience that wows your customers and keeps them coming back for more. And now our host, Bobby Maramat. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Brick and Mortar Reborn. Today we have a very special guest with us, Dustin Jones, co-founder and CEO of the Unified Commerce Group. Dustin, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a real great pleasure to be here. Likewise, likewise. And uh, of course, uh, I don't think I can do your bio enough justice. If you don't mind uh, walking us through, uh, letting us learn about you first and then uh, about Unified Commerce Group next, that would be that would be great. You know, maybe I'll introduce myself with your store audience in mind. I've been a retailer almost my entire life. I have sort of family roots attached to retail and had the chance to work in many different sort of early early years in my life, retailers and and everything from department stores to Papa John's. And in at 21, I started my first company, which was a digital company anchored out of a brick and mortar store in my hometown. And I had the first experience of, of understanding the challenges and successes that go with growing a digital business and also the intimate challenges that go with running and operating your own store. And because of that time, running an e-com business was so new. I was 21, like I said, and it was early 2000s. There weren't many people that were running e-commerce businesses at scale. Even Jeff Bezos was still pretty young. And I was, I was recruited by Macy's to join their fast-growing organization and help them build their omni-channel strategy in Macy's.com. And I was able to be an executive at Macy's for 14 years. I rose from being a, an assistant to being an executive vice president and having about a third of the entire company report into my pyramid and had the chance to join and build Macy's.com from a $250 million business to today. I think it's over $9 billion. And when I left, it was about $7.5 billion. But the exposure of beginning my career with such a great brand that scaled and became a, a national brand gave me the exposure of how quickly the interplay between stores and digital would be in the future of, our, of consumer lives and, and retail brand lives. And as a part of my career advancement, my career progression, I had the chance to run the international division of Macy's and form a joint venture with Jack Ma, who is the founder and CEO of the Alibaba Group, and his right-hand lieutenant, Daniel Tsang, who is now currently the CEO of the Alibaba Group. And I had the chance to move to China with my family. We lived in Hong Kong primarily, spent most of my weeks there for four and a half years in China, running a highly dynamic business that, that was supported by the Alibaba Group, Macy's, and the largest supply chain company in the world called the Fung Group which gave me the experience of, of not only then taking my knowledge and understanding of a of Western consumer and marrying that to the speed and innovation and consumption of an Eastern consumer. And that experience has really defined my life, defined my family's life, and, and inspired me to create a new company called Unified Commerce Group that embraced the challenges that I believe brands of the, of the next generation of brands will face in scaling globally and also delivers the opportunity of the world's largest markets to brands, which is China and uh, the United States, North America, and digitization. And so we're early in our journey at Unified Commerce Group. We're less than two years old. 
and we're in the process of acquiring great companies. We made our first acquisition uh, just about six months ago, a wonderful brand based out of Montreal called Frank and Oak, which I'm sure I'll have the opportunity to speak more about. And we're in the process of making more acquisitions and hope to have two or three locked up this year as we continue to scale our company and deliver value. So Bobby, that's me. That's awesome. That's a lot. And uh, you know, you've uh, of course had a lot of experience in, in, in the retail side and have had experience from all facets. So really excited to, to kind of dig in here and learn a little bit more. You noted um, that you made your first acquisition with Frank and Oak. Tell us a little bit about, about that brand and what, uh, what enticed you to make that acquisition. Well, it's a brand we've loved for a long time. We actually pre-COVID had that brand in the top three of the types of brands we would buy if we could. And, and as you know, it's not just about what brand you want, but it's what brand you can afford. And uh, during the time prior to COVID, we were in a seller's market. Brand valuations had never been higher. Frank and Oak's valuation had never been higher. And the process of COVID has rationalized all of that. And it's, it's balanced the buyer's market and the seller's market and put it in a place where there's more rational pricing, which is for a buyer like ourselves, key. So I would say, first of all, Frank and Oak was in our sites well before COVID, but became realistic for us through that process and, and that leadership team recognizing that they needed not only capital, but they needed significant value add to deliver on their brand promise. The reasons more intrinsically for, for acquiring Frank and Oak have to do with the brand's position. We believe that the future of retail is, uh, is brands that are digitized and, and direct. Frank and Oak is 80% digital. They have 20% of their revenue in stores, but beautiful stores. They own their data from the beginning tra customer transaction to today, which means you can get at customers faster and more agilely. So that's the first, the first key point is that they were digitized and direct. The second is that they had done a really good job about, uh, about defining their brand promise around purpose. And as you may or may not know, Frank and Oak is one of the most beloved sustainable brands in the market. They are dogged. They are a tribe of people that are just anxiously engaged in driving sustainability and solving some of the solutions in the fashion industry that need to be solved in order to lessen the impact that fashion has on, on the planet. And so that purpose drives their behavior. It drives their innovation. It drives their reason for waking up in the morning. And that for us, identifying brands with purpose for us was a critical, critical component. And then I would say it came down to the characteristics of the brand that felt like it was the right billion dollar brand in our future. It's a brand that has 50% of its sales in men's and 50% of its sales in women's. It's a brand that has profitable men's stores, profitable women's stores, profitable combo stores. It's a brand that has great characteristics and data as we look to expand it in the United States. Though it's a Canadian brand, almost 50% of its customers are from the United States, which bodes well for expansion there. Its founder, Ethan Song, brilliant guy who is from Beijing, and we believe that the founder roots will, will be a good narrative in China. We believe that it can be a leading brand driving the sustainability wave in China, which is yet to come, but we believe will be coming swiftly. And I think the fact that it's the largest subscription company in Canada, that people wake up and vote for that brand and want to subscribe to it meant a lot to us and a great team inside that is just committed to its, its purpose and its success. So we're very fortunate to be a part of that company. We're very fortunate to support Frank and Oak in delivering its, its unrealized potential and, and continue to manage through a, a difficult time in terms of the global pandemic. But those are all the reasons I probably could go on for a while. 
<laughs> no, that's good. That's great. What 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 do you think? Uh, what what defines and, and you probably again with your experience, you can you probably pick this up very quick. But what defines a next generation retail brand in your mind? Well, I mean, I think you have to think about what's happening in in the broader apparel and and fashion world, which is where I live. But it it really you can apply that to almost any retail organization. And there's a few key themes that that I think are important. The first is is that. It's never been easier to create a brand today. And, and as a function of that, territorially, there, the, the market has become hyper-fragmented. When I was at Macy's, you couldn't survive as a brand unless you got into Macy's. And, and so Macy's had ultimate buying power and brands worked very hard to, to deliver a, a value proposition that resonated with Macy's consumers. And so we had the chance to meet Tommy Hilfiger when he was very young and he was on my board in the later years of my career. We had the chance to meet Michael Kors when he was just a $20 million company out of New York and, and help see him to, you know, a brand that's worth over $3 billion. We had the chance to meet North Face when they were babies, Under Armour when it was just a, a one shirt for a football team. And, and at that time, you needed, you needed a centralized point of distribution because uh, the market in digitization wasn't strong enough to support vertical distribution. And that change to vertical has made it so it's never been easier to start a brand and form a community, but it's never been harder to scale a brand as a counter to the ease of which you can start one. And by that, I mean, to, to really scale in the United States or North America, to really scale and get out of, out of territory and into Asia or Europe, it's never been harder to do that because the competition is fierce. And what that does is that mean you have, means you have to know what are the characteristics of that consumers are looking for globally that can allow brands permission to become a global brand at scale. And those we believe are, number one, appetites are converging. And that means that the, what the Chinese consumer wants and what the uh, Canadian or American or European consumer wants, they're converging and they're becoming very simple and similar. Everybody wants dim sum. Everybody wants pizza. Everybody wants, you know, hot pot. There's the, and it's accessible. Everybody wants Faux. And there's just, there's just all of these, uh, you know, converging appetites. And I use food because it's the easiest for people to, to sort of understand. But also, everybody wants Lululemon. And they want it in real time. And, you know, when I started going to China, the number one denim brand was Marlboro Jeans. And a Western brand could sell their products at two and a half or three times the regular price in the United States. And today, all of that is wiped away. And People have access to, you know, the language barriers are fallen. They have access to due to supply chains of products globally. And so they have this sophisticated taste now. And so you have to make sure that your brand addresses that universal appetite and that it can transcend into these local communities equally. The second is that I believe that, and this is one of the fundamental reasons why we, we started Unified Commerce Group. I believe that the next generation of brands are going to be all about being purpose-driven. At Macy's and, and first when I went into China, it was all about designer brands. It was all about runway labels and, and then taking those labels and tattooing a consumer household with products from those labels, you know, whether it was perfume or, or, or beauty or outerwear or swimwear or, or ready-to-wear. It was how many different ways can I sell Michael Kors or another runway designer? But today consumers are much more conscious and the millennials use this term the woke generation and really what that means is they're looking to buy things that are a part of their tribe that are part of who they are that define their unique purpose and and so brands that are clear about purpose will find a very loyal tribe of customers 
that can be ambassadors as they seek to scale. So we look for brands that have active subscription, that have active belonging, that that have an active message that consumers can follow, whether that activity is golf or, or sustainability. We believe that is a critical component to success. And then, of course, we built that we, we believe that brands that were built with digitization in their DNA will have the strongest likelihood to succeed across the different markets. And that's primarily, Bobby, because you have to be flexible and agile and know how to use data to scale in our environments today. It doesn't matter whether you're running a store business or a digital business. How you use data, which is the number one currency in retail, defines how you acquire new customers and drive personalization and loyalty with your existing customers. And so if digitization is in your DNA, your ability to adapt to a digital world and a data-driven world will be much easier. Makes sense. Makes sense. Can you define what you what you uh, would define as digitization for, for our listeners, if you will? Yeah. I mean, it used to be people said digitization and you it was automatically synonymous with e-commerce. But today, digitization is about the engine that drives all commerce. And the simplest way to think about it is every person that that works to deliver product to a consumer now has digitization and digital components attached to their scope of work, whether that's how you conduct transactions in a physical store or how you use technology to transfer inventory or have a single view of inventory, whether that's how you use social media to connect your your other engines of commerce and drive live video selling or, or other things, whether it's your finance engine or your logistics engine or you know your 3D avatar that drives your sampling process in the supply chain. Essentially, digitization is perforated through all of the different components that are inside a retail company, and it's tethered through data and the ability for an organization to collect data and learn from data and then drive changes in, in, in organizational behavior and customer behavior through what they're learning from that data. So, you know, Bobby, it's that reason why it's not so easy to go from a small fat fragmented brand to a large global brand because the journey and getting through all that work is quite complicated. Yeah, we have, we have brands, of course, that we talk to that are strong on the e-com side that we're you know, thinking about taking advantage of kind of building out their brick and mortar type locations, of course, during COVID, given that they can get better, better rates and actually use a lot of the data that they learn from the e-com side to be able to place better locations, if you will, right? And then kind of vice versa, people that were kind of stronger on the brick and mortar side that really been thinking about the e-com side of things. What strategies or what advice do you give to operators, retailers that wish to really be able to, you know, if they're really strong in brick and mortar, to be able to think about the digital online e-com side and then, you know, vice versa? How, how, would they, how would they look at that? What would be the first steps that they would take to kind of figure out what to do next? Well, I think that if you're, if you're a brick and mortar brand that is centralized on that, I think, first of all, you have to think about your first step into digitization being about your community. Then your second step being about your convenience, and then you can think about your commerce. And I, I, I didn't mean to use three C's, but I guess I did. <laughs> the community is, you know, you, you know, you just take the just take the grocery store as a simple example, right? You had a completely disconnected experience, whatever Kroger grocery store you go to, or whatever other chain you go to, and people would have thought that's the last thing to digitize, but. Ultimately, as they've gotten closer in serving their community and connecting themselves to the community, they become more profitable. And obviously through COVID, they become hyper profitable. 
how you think about as an owner connecting yourself digitally to your community is really important. That means what social media channels are you on? What business, you know, social channels are you on? How are you using the existing channels that are available to you to connect with your local community first? And how can you use digitization tools to do that? Whether that's, whether that's creating, um, curbside pickup function for, for your businesses through technology and, and off of your website interface or whatever your digital interface looks like, or connecting yourself to communities and inside marketplaces like Amazon to broaden your appeal. The first thing is, is you have to, you have to understand who your community is. You have to figure out how to connect to them digitally. The second to them is you need to become, you need to become convenient. And that's really the, the, the thing that it doesn't matter how cool your brand is or not cool. If you're not convenient, your conversion suffers dramatically. And so that's what digital tools are you using to check out in your store? Registers are out of date. Are you using mobile devices to do that so that you have that register space available to you for other things such as merchandising or gift wrapping or, or whatever else you might do? But if when you put the register in your associate's hands, they're more likely to serve customers and ask questions and, and support the customer journey inside the store. How are you thinking about convenience and delivering to your consumer's home and providing them more convenient ways to shop with you? And then commerce, which is how do I take my brick and mortar experience and how do I translate that into a digital experience across the channels and digitization, whether it's social channels or my own e-commerce or a marketplace? How do I define my position in, in commerce and in digital commerce? Am I well-suited to do live video and to drive live video sales out of my stores with my associates? Am I better suited to join a marketplace and, and find a partner to help me drive that? Or is my community strong enough that I can build my own digit.com and I can build my own interface that connects all of these experiences and conveniences together? And then can I find a partner that helps me do that cost-effectively? That's the very baseline, the very baseline, obviously, if, if, you're, a, if you're a new brand. No, absolutely, absolutely. That's great advice. What What do you do if you if you already have that baseline set and you and, and you're looking to really scale globally? What, what do you how do you how do you do that next, uh, Dustin? Well, I think when you're and, and Frank and Oak is a good example of that because you're talking about a brand that most people in Canada know, and Canada is a you know a, a smaller market than the United States, but it's still significant enough that. You can survive and thrive in that market only. And, and Lululemon used it as its first market and Canada Goose used it as its first market. Ritzia has used it as its first market. So there's great brands that have come from there ahead of Frank and Oak that, that, that have done that. But, but they're a great example of a, a brand that has achieved significant success in what I would call connected communities, but then has to say, okay, what's next? What's the next level? And, and so what we've been doing with the brand is we've said, okay, what do we know about our customer? What do we know about our customer behavior? And how do we use our connected channels to expand from that knowledge into new markets? And so, for example, in our case, we have a highly engaged subscriber and we have highly engaged store business that pre-COVID was, I should say during COVID was less engaged, but, but not any less than anyone else. And so what we had to do is we had to say, how do we connect our subscriber and how do we connect our stores and our regular commerce engines together? And so we've spent a lot of money on improving our loyalty program and connecting our loyalty program to our stores so that our associates are incentivized and to, to, to drive subscription and to drive membership. We've worked really hard on improving our regular digital business 
you know, if you think about our case, the primary digital business was subscription. So a regular consumer that wasn't ready to subscribe was having an inferior experience. And so we're in the process of overhauling that, what I would call regular digital experience into one that is first class. And then we've been studying our data to say, where are the next markets where there is a tribe that most, most closely represents our tribe? And that's where data becomes most important. We found that, for example, in our brand, and this is the beauty of being digital, is that you can access data beyond your a single market. We found that Brooklyn was the best fit for our expansion into the United States as a place to start. We found that the, it was the largest concentration of digital transactions for our brand in, in the United States. And we found that it shared the strongest characteristics in terms of customer behavior to Montreal. And so we, which is where the brand was founded. And so Brooklyn, it was a natural next market for us. And then what we do is we, we don't just drive digital or drive a store in Brooklyn, what we do it together in a ripple effect. And we anchor it by opening a store, by geo-targeting our marketing spend towards that community, by signing uh, and partnerships with uh, retailers that are, are surround that community so that customers can see our brand in more than just our physical store as a point of distribution. And we really focus on growing that community. Many people think when they enter a new market that they have to go enter the US or enter you know, the UK. The reality is you can pick one single market in that country, one single city with a strongest, strong enough population center and really leverage that to sort of do the work for you on, on expanding into new markets. And so for us, that's what we've done with Frank and Oak and and uh, we're focusing on Brooklyn and Shanghai as our, as our two next markets. That's amazing. That's amazing. Now, that, with that experience, I mean, you have some phenomenal experience working, of course, with Macy's, which is a very strong brand. What are some of the, the strategies, technologies, actions, really, that, that you focused on when you were trying to build up uh, more brand awareness for, for Macy's? Well, the first thing was, I mean, it was an incredible challenge because when I joined Macy's, we were in nine states. And we weren't nationwide. We bought a bunch of different department stores in order to become nationwide. And then we rebranded them all Macy's. And we leveraged our heritage and we leveraged our values. We leveraged the parade and we leveraged the 4th of July fireworks. And we leveraged, you know, Christmas and the attachment to Christmas nationally to to be able to attract consumers to our brand and convince them that even though they had a beloved brand there before, our brand is something that will serve them very well in that transition. And it, it took time. But one of the things that I had the chance to be a part of was, you know, when I joined Macy's.com, it was an entirely different organization than Macy's Inc. Uh, Macy's.com had its own president and CEO and own operating teams and made its own buys on merchandise and brands and different than Macy's Inc. did. And my job was to connect that. My job and, and, and my it was really our team's idea, but we you know we basically came in one day and said, guys, why do we have two different companies? We don't need to buy another product if we can just integrate our, the inventory that's sitting in our stores to our online channels. And at that time, that was like saying we're going to go to the moon. Nobody done it. <laughs> wasn't no there was no technology to help you do it, and it was like how do you do it? And so we tested it by by first manually creating a mechanism. Excel based that uh, fulfilled inventory from three of our stores online. And, and 
we had to solve all sorts of challenges to connect inventory, to connect experiences, to connect brands, to create efficient fulfillment. There were so many different things that that we did, but along that journey of creating what people now refer to as omnichannel, we learned about the power of localization and the power of data that can help serve the local communities better. And so we started something called My Macy's, which was all about taking the learnings from our stores and combining them with the data that we were getting from our digital engines to learn more about customers in local territories, Texas, Atlanta, Florida, New York, San Francisco, or Seattle, and then learning from that data to create experiences and unique products for those markets that resonated with that consumer. I mean, somebody in Seattle is very different than somebody in Miami, but you have one brand that expects to serve both. So how do you do that? And that is where I think where Macy's, where we took off as a company is when we got my Macy's right and we got Omnichannel right. And by doing that, we learned about what brands we needed to go get. We learned about what products we needed to get. We could inform our brands about how to deliver better experiences for our customers nationally. And that was the learning grounds for me to think about, okay, well, I learned how to do that in the United States. Now, how do I think about that globally in addressing taste and appetite, need, customer? Absolutely. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. It's interesting. Some of your experience, do you have do you have uh, some favorite locations that you like to shop in that really do the customer experience in location, you know, e-com experience well in your mind? Can I use U.S. and Asia? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Well, first of all, I think from a market perspective, I was always fascinated with the differences between how somebody behaves in different regions of the United States. But one of my favorite markets to go to, which would surprise most people, is Texas. And why did I like that? Well, first of all, the, the way that stores are operated from, for, and I'm just talking about Macy's, right? Again, you had, we had at one point a thousand stores and I was doing my best to get to 40 or 50 a year, which was a lot at the time. But so, so you end up getting these sort of you end up traveling the country and you end up seeing how people execute in San Francisco and what type of cultures there, how they execute in Queens, New York and in, in different areas. But I always looked forward to going to Texas because of how incredibly efficient the store teams were and how incredibly diverse they were. There was a large Hispanic community there that was a great supporter of the Macy's brand, very loyal. We had unique product assortments that the store teams in Texas were very, very vocal about making sure we drove the the, the needs and, and fulfilled the needs that they had for their consumers there, which were very different than other places. And I found that for us, that that market was also the first to adapt to new technologies. They always wanted to be the pilot territory for innovation that we were bringing, whether it was small store environments or more local Hispanic uh, stores that addressed uh, that consumer, whether it was new technology that we were testing, whether it was new retail formats inside our stores that we were testing. For me, that was my favorite community to go and test and where I saw the most success with digital integration early. What I would say, though, from a, from a retail experience is one that probably none of your listeners has heard of. And that's a company in China called Hema, H-E-M-A. And that's, that would be the English language translation and they're, and they're 
their logo is a hip, hippopotamus, a smiling hippopotamus, which is very cute and affectionate. <laughs> and Huma was the brainchild of the CEO of Alibaba, the current CEO, Daniel Tsum. And he moved into store retail late. Alibaba started as a digital engine, and now they have thousands and thousands of convenience stores. They have department stores. They have shopping malls. They have grocery stores. And he had this idea, which was, what if we created this hyper experimental grocery experiential grocery store that served communities like our digital engine serves communities but we built it with a digital engine first and so he created this grocery store that he incubated out of shanghai and he and the grocery store when you go in there first of all you're overwhelmed with the amount of boutiques and restaurants that are inside with fresh products that, that you can consume in the moment. So it's kind of like Ikea did a growth, did a little bit of a, a restaurant inside their, their big boxes, but imagine that, but you can get Thai food and you can get Szechuan food and you can get Hong Kong food and you can get fresh seafood and you can get all these different foods inside the grocery store. Okay. And then they have this massive live fish environment where you can select your lobster or select your snapper or select your salmon or select your shrimp. And there's, there's a whole experience there to do that, which just makes it feel so, so fresh. But then the, the digital experience is that above you, there are these conveyor belts where associates in blue shirts are working round the clock, fulfilling digital orders that are coming in. And they're putting all these digital orders into baskets that are moving above you and are being sent out to be delivered to anyone within 30 minutes. So imagine the speed of that. I tested it one time by ordering a, a, a Chinese Red Bull. And within 20 minutes, I had a single can of Red Bull at my office. And, and that's how efficient it is. And so everything is connected online. And most consumers actually have shifted all of their consumption towards this digital grocery shopping. Where got, and then it's fulfilled to them within an hour or two. And then everything is digitized inside it. So you don't have to ever use checkout. You don't, you know, you're, you can check out as you put things in your basket, it's recognized right away. And so it's this hyper-efficient system that has experience built around it. Really fascinating. And, and one, I'm sure if you Google HEMA, H-E-M-A, people can find a lot of great videos about it. I am definitely going to check that out. I just made a note to myself. That's amazing. That's great. That's perfect. Of course, they they progressed from that into new things. Like that's actually where where Starbucks got the roastery idea, which I'm sure you've seen. Oh, wow. But yeah, the, ev the evolution of that was to try in other areas, and so the next thing they tried, Alibaba and Starbucks got together to do the roastery, which uh, now most people know today and is a great piece of their business. Absolutely, absolutely, Dustin. That was that was a wealth of information. Is there anything else that you want to share with the listeners that I? maybe did not ask that you think is important for them to know. You know. The last thing that I would share is, again, I know a lot of your listeners are, are in what we would define as physical retail. And uh, I get asked this question all the time, which is, why aren't you just pursuing direct-to-consumer digital volume? And why, why do you believe so much in physical retail? I believe that the future of retail isn't about being digital or being physical. It's about being, it's sort of all commerce. And so I believe that the, store is going to be the hub of commerce, whether digital, social, or, or physical. And the sooner that you take that view, the sooner you can train store associates and store managers and readers and managers to be a strategist with you on how you create, create a stronger connected community that shops all of your channels 
and uses stores as their hub. And so, you know, my point of view is we invest in brands and we invest in technology is to bring that to life, but do it, you know, globally. That's awesome. Dustin, before we let you go, I know you're in the Hong Kong area. Any any favorites there as people start to travel again that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, anybody that comes to Hong Kong has to get on a ferry and go out to see the local Hong Kong islands that most people don't really, you know, you come into Hong Kong and it's this massive towered city that's very tight. And that's kind of what you think it is. But what you don't realize is within 15 minutes on a ferry, you can be in some of the most preserved islands that you've ever been to, where there's very local fishermen and very local boutiques, and you can enjoy a wonderful meal and a wonderful hike. And if you're going to Hong Kong for business or pleasure, you absolutely have to get on one of those ferries and, and get out to the outer islands. And there's that my favorite is one called Chung Hong Kok, which is uh, a beautiful place that has a surf cafe. And uh, that would be my number one recommendation. My second recommendation would be to, to, to go to the Kowloon side of Hong Kong and experience K11, which is an entirely new version of retail thinking and, and, and is owned by Adrian Chung and the New World Development family. And that if somebody and your listeners is going to Hong Kong to shop retail, you have to go to K11 and see what they're doing there. Well, Dustin, thanks again for taking uh, some time out today to, to spend some time with us, sharing your expertise. And uh, that was that was a wealth of information. So I appreciate it again. Hey, thanks for having me. And, and I hope to all of your listeners that something I shared today proves valuable in your careers. Absolutely. I, I definitely learned something. So I'm, I'm sure they'll also learn something. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you, Dustin. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Brick and Mortar Reborn. To find the resources mentioned in this show and detailed show notes, head over to brickandmortarreborn.com.